Welcome to the B Major Podcast with Noah Aronson. I am Noah Aronson. I'm a recording artist, composer, performer, and intentional mover. I create music and interactive experiences to activate creativity in the mind and body. This podcast is a playground for you to explore the intersection of wellness and creativity. My process involves activating the voice by dropping into the body. I developed this method to help me battle depression and anxiety, and now I'm excited to share with you how creativity can be a powerful modality to add to other wellness and healing practices you may have. I call it the Revoice Method, and all of the music you'll hear on this podcast will be a result of this creative practice. Each week, you'll hear interviews with practitioners working in the wellness and creativity space, be guided through meditations, and will be invited into my revoice method. It is my belief that we are all quote-unquote creatives, and when we can activate our creativity authentically, we can all be happier, healthier, be more joyful, we can all be major. Over to love, over to love, over to love. Welcome back, B Major friends. Today's episode is called The Magic of Creativity, and I speak with professor, artist, and composer Leanne Gabora about her research in the field of creativity. Over the years, I've found that my creative practices have been the one constant through line that have kept me grounded in my purpose. I have struggled a lot with focus and bounced around a lot with different mediums of creativity, but there seems to be a deep need for creative expression and exploration nonetheless. I may be wrong, but I still hold to the belief that we are all creatives and that we all have this primal desire to express our creativity. Obviously, it manifests itself differently, and I agree with Leanne Gabora when she says that artistic creativity is not that much different than scientific creativity. It is coming from the same basic desire for exploration. For me, the issues around my creative development have all been connected to my issues with self-worth. I found that throughout my career, I've pivoted many times in my creative pursuits. And this is primarily because I lacked the confidence and belief in myself to stay consistent with one form. So instead of perfecting one craft, I would start new projects and ventures, getting myself to proficiency, but never to excellence in any one area. In some ways, this has served me well, as I can now do many things like compose in different styles, record, produce, notate, arrange, play different instruments, edit music, mix. I can also sing and perform and dance. Luckily, all of these various skills have been focused enough in the field of music that I've been able to carve out a career for myself, but the lack of specific focus has prevented me from truly shining in any one particular area. What I'm working with now 
is how I can fuse all of these skills together, but more importantly, to honor what it is that I truly want to express and let myself express it. Even though all of these skills have taken my entire professional life to develop, the single hardest one for me to cultivate has been the permission I give myself to express my creativity authentically and without judgment. This is why I think it's so important to speak with people like Leanne and the other wonderful guests that we have on this podcast series. The creative process is not just one about making art. It's also a mental health and a wellness practice. If we're too afraid to address our inner selves, we'll never truly create meaningful art. practice that I've been sharing here on this podcast is one that I call the revoice method, where I give myself permission to start from nothing and then invite in all of the spontaneous expression that wants to emerge through me without judgment. The more I do this practice, the more I am training a creative muscle and building the confidence to know that whatever wants to emerge through me in a given moment is good and deserves to be expressed. And this is what I'm wanting to offer to others the permission to let yourself express your creativity, to carve out a time in your day when you can let that which is wanting to flow through you flow with ease and see where it takes you. My interview today with Leanne Gabora took a little bit longer than most of my podcast interviews, so we're going to skip our revoice experience on this episode, and we're going to jump right into the interview. Find a comfortable place, take a deep breath, and let's begin. I'm speaking today with Leanne Gabora, who is a professor of psychology at the University of British Columbia. I was particularly interested in her research on the creative process and specifically how it relates to music creation. Most of the people we interview on this series are working in the wellness and mental health spaces, but I must say that this one is a bit of a self-serving interview because as many of you know, I am also a composer and I would love to learn more about the research behind the creative process of music making. So welcome, Leanne. It is a honor and a joy to have you here. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be speaking with you today. And you're calling from all the way across the, the country. Uh, where, where are we finding you today? I'm in Kelowna, British Columbia. Oh, wonderful. So it is uh, just so great to be able to connect with you uh, and, uh, and meet you in this way. Uh, and I know that uh, our listeners are in for a treat because you have just so much wisdom to share uh, on the subject of creativity. Uh, so I'm wondering about your journey, your upbringing, and what sorts of things led you uh, into this field of studying and, uh, you know, learning more about creativity. There's lots of ways I could approach that. So I always was told that I was creative. Um, I was always constantly doodling. So uh, all of my school notebooks were just filled with doodles. And um, I was uh, making up things on the piano. And, um, and uh, so I was always felt that I was creative and I was telling stories as well. Um, 
I had a sister who died of leukemia and I remember writing a story about her some years later and feeling all the emotions around that um, welling up in me, but also feeling that sense of cathartic release and just feeling cleansed after writing the story. And so I guess that was my first experience that I remember of just that big feeling of um, the healing or transformative power of creativity and how it can just make you feel like you're a new refreshed person and um so that's one way of answering it i remember in high school going to the books to the library and looking up every book on creativity and reading them all because i just people would always say i was creative and so i thought what does that mean and um and yet sort of what led me to study it is something different. I did my uh, master's degree in biology and uh, and sort of a computational biology and started a PhD in that too. And um, and because I, I just thought, what is the most interesting question you can ask? Well, it's what makes something alive? So what differentiates something that is alive from something that is not alive and because it just seems like living things are infused with a kind of magic right and um i just thought if you can use science to understand what that's all about what could be more interesting and i was attracted to a program that combined biology and computer science because then you could actually uh, play God in a way you could make things and and perform experiments and and see how it worked and really feel that you understand firsthand how something works because if you can not only watch it and do little experiments on it but actually build it from scratch and then manip and then do controlled experiments that you have trouble doing in real life then um, that's a, a an approach that leads to a sense of deep understanding yeah. but yeah. Um, I, I was I had worked on this uh, computational model of natural selection, and then I found out that someone else, John Holland, had done it 15 years earlier, and he'd done a way better job of it, and already applied it to all kinds of things like pipeline optimization and stuff like that. So, um, so then I thought, well, what actually interests me, maybe even more than how evolution works, is how cultural evolution works. Hmm. And I was the first person to do a computational model of cultural evolution. So one that shows sort of cumulative adaptive change over time in um, culturally evolving agents. But the agents had a, a creative algorithm, but I knew that it was really lame compared to what goes on in real human creativity. So then I thought, okay, I'm gonna have to spend like a few months studying creativity some more to really understand how the creative process works in order to get this model up and running. And um, 20, over 20 years later, I'm still studying creativity. And partly it's because, you know, the answers haven't been found yet. And, uh, and so some of the information that I was seeking, actually no one knew the answers yet. And partly because I started finding that I was piecing away some puzzle pieces that I thought that nobody else had really seen. And, um, there was a really fun process in and of itself. And uh, so I realized, you know, in order to, to understand how culture evolves, it's true, we have to understand the creative process, but we're just like so at the baby infancy steps of understanding how the creative process works. So um, yeah, so I've been doing that for a long time now. <laughs> 
sounds like what the theory is behind it is um, that creativity is essential for studying the, the cultural evolution, the, the evolution of culture. Absolutely, because what drives cultural evolution is that creative spark, right? Um, it's the creative spark that helps you come up with new things that allow people to see things new ways. And uh, by cultural evolution, I, I include, you know, pretty much everything. So not just um, new technological inventions, but new music, new art, um, new perspectives, new ideologies, new ways of looking at things. Um, I think all of that is now recognized as being a part of what comprise, culture comprises. I, I think this might sound like a four-year-old question, like a, a question a four-year-old might ask their parents, which actually might be a great question for a show on creativity. And we can go into, you know, children and creativity later. Um, but um, like from the very, from just the very biggest perspective, like where does creativity come from based on what you've, you know, studied? Well, there are lots of ways of answering that. Um, but one way is by saying it, it comes from the drive to explore and to learn about your environment and to ask questions and to have needs. And, you know, they say necessity is the mother of invention, but it often is the case that when someone has a need, it sparks that creative thinking, right? And, uh, and it can be a, a need that is something like um, pent up emotion as well, something that is sort of whirled up in you, you haven't found a way of venting it or expressing it, or um, you feel that it doesn't have a route out that is acceptable to society, or you just don't even know how to articulate it, you have no clue how to put it into words. And that can spark us to find little backdoor entrances by which we can explain it. A lot of people who can't verbalize what they're feeling, they can draw pictures that make them feel that same sense of release as when people verbalize. And I think music is partly about that too. It's, it, it is another language. It's finding a language, um, I guess there was some great musician, I can't remember who it was, maybe you remember, but it, it's the language of the emotions. Mm. And uh, yeah, and I think there there is some, some truth to that. And, you know, there's some kind of fun too with music. So some people are doing it, you know, very intellectually and uh, exploring what is possible. Um, I've, I, for a while I got on a kick of listening to podcasts by this guy, it's called The Art of Composing. And I found it fascinating because his composition process was just so different from my own. It was very logical and rigorous and just um, planned out. And uh, my own process is very different from that. And, you know, I think there are just so many different ways of creating. There is as many different ways of creating as there are different creators. Can you talk a little bit about your process? I'd love to learn and hear about what your creative process is. Uh, yeah, for sure. Um, well, it depends on what domain. So I, uh, I, I 
the first domain that I um, tried to be creative in as professionally uh, was writing, creative writing. And I had had some experiences um, involving light and metaphorical aspects of light as a teenager. And I really felt compelled to write about them. I felt like this is my um, life's uh, if there's some higher being in the world, this is what they told me to do. It felt like that. And um, and I tried and I failed. Um, and uh, I could write a story, but some parts came very naturally to me and other parts didn't. And it was just awful. It wasn't engaging at all. And uh, so I tried in 86 and I tried in... So to write a whole novel from start to finish, and I actually completed it. And then I completed again in 92. And then I completed it again in 2000, no, 94, and then 2002. And after three failed attempts, I realized, I told myself, okay, I cannot go back to that novel until I've got at least three short stories published. And I have to, so I had read every book I could find on the writing process, but I never really studied it. So I, I took courses on creative writing and, um, and, uh, and went to some workshops and there I, I, you know, I started to learn, okay, you need some structure. You need to really um, out, outline the plot and, and sort of, and pace it and and uh, all these things hadn't come naturally to me but dialogue came supernaturally to me setting came supernaturally to me um character development i've improved over time uh so it didn't come naturally to me but it was something that i could readily improve at but um yeah um so so the writing has been a lot of work a ton of work. And uh, now I have five short stories published and one more in press. So I'm eager to get back to that novel again, now that I've met the goal that I had set for myself. Um, you speak a lot about the doing and the actual product of the creativity, but I'm curious, and I wonder if our listeners are also curious about the, like the creative process, like how do we actually like, what are you tapping into and like, where do you start and where, like, where do you get the inspiration from? I think that's the part that I think people okay. are curious about. Well, uh, the inspiration for the novel came from some experiences that I had um, that, that were of a different way of perceiving. And um, it was sort of like perceiving human beings as balls of light, um, but sort of not, because uh, I wasn't using my eyes per se, but it was a very, something I was aware of and tangible and something that, um, that uh, told me things. And, uh, and then I, I started researching the spiritual literature and found that I'm not the only one who's had these experiences. I'll, I asked everybody I knew and nobody else had had them, but many people have had these kinds of experiences. And uh, for me, I only had them while I had my period or right before I had my period. So it was a, it was a um, yeah, I was just locked into that. And uh, I had not found anybody else who had anything like that that went on at that time of the month. And um, so, so I would get all my inspiration from these experiences and from these times. And 
I could not be my normal self during these times because it was very all encompassing and I was getting too much information. Um, but I could remember what it was like to be my normal self. And so I'd kind of fake it. And, uh, but then when I didn't have those experience, when it, during the rest of the month, I'd be so curious, what the heck was that? And I'd be trying to write about it and, um, and preserve it in some way. So I ended up taking tons of notes about those experiences and I don't get them in that same explicit way anymore, but, um, but it's part of me now. So I have access to it. And uh, it's like the same thing. I, if I was speaking to like a medium or someone who channels, sounds like you're kind of op- a channel or portal of some sort of opened up and just downloaded into you. Maybe. I, I I don't really know what it was about. I can't really explain it. But I can say that other people have had these experiences and, and very similar, very, something's very similar, like onion skin layers to people's essences. and stuff. Like just some of the details are uncannily similar. So I'm pretty sure other people have had similar, you know, the same experience. But I guess it's quite unusual. Yeah. Um, so that's what impelled me. And then I was just so because it is so fascinating and it, it just put me in touch with so many different kinds of things that made everyday life look humdrum. And so I was really compelled to find a way of sharing that with people. And I thought, well, no one's going to believe you. So I'll write stories about it. And uh, that was what propelled me in that. Um, And, um, and then once I got into it, the characters came to me and then they would start, it's, it's uncanny. A lot of writers talk about this, but when you experience it yourself, it's really quite something. So this, the characters start speaking through you and telling you how they're reacting to things. And, and you just become a fertile ground in which they can live their lives and, and interact and, and do their thing. And, you just have to get out of the way almost. Mm. Um, so that's fascinating. And that is something I've never experienced, like doing anything art- artistic or, or musical. Um, so interesting. I, I wonder, is there a um, spiritual component to your creativity and to your life or and to your life outside of the creativity? Or do you find that creativity and your spirituality are kind of intertwined? When you're in a creative, um, on a role creatively, you are tapped into something that is, I think, deeper and more profound than everyday experience. And, uh, and similarly, when you are having a spiritual experience or when you're um, tapped into the spiritual nature of the world. Um, and I think for me, nature ha- plays a role in both. So nature facilitates uh, my ability to feel sort of um, uh, the earth and the, and the trees and the water as, as spiritual forces, as almost alive presences. And um, nature is also where I got, get a lot of ideas, nature and, uh, and being asleep. And I think that's pretty common. So studying creativity, um, I've, I've noticed that these are both sources of, of creative insight for a lot of people. And I've experienced both. Um, one of my best pieces of music, I 
I woke, I, I woke up and I knew, okay, I had this music in my mind and I knew if I didn't go and instantly try to play it on the piano and record it, it would be lost forever. And uh, I had had a few experiences before where I did have these great musical ideas come to me in the middle of the night and um, I just woke up with them and I was too lazy to get out of bed and just thought, oh, I'll remember this. And yeah, you don't, yeah. you have to, you have to get it out. So what's happening in your sleep before that to make that happen you know it just fades so quickly right you just have these little glimmers of these musical ideas forging their way and um you just know that when you wake up like you just have to do everything you can to shield everything else out so that you can you can get it out right i don't know if you've had that, that experience musically i very much know what you're talking about it's uh <laughs> When when iPhone came out with the voice memo um, feature, um, like yeah, we obviously these these things in our hands have have developed so much over time. Um, there wasn't a time; it wasn't that long ago where we couldn't just record an idea immediately on our phones. Uh, so I used to have like a little tape recorder or something like that. But um, I didn't. Yeah, there was a time when I didn't have that like readily available, and so. Um, luckily, like, it's just, I have with one click of a button, I can just sing into something and I can kind of capture an idea. Obviously then that's, that's the inspiration, but then the perspiration part is actually turning that into actual art. Uh, yeah, well, and this work was done specifically by a former PhD student, Upper Aranda, but, um, she was interested in the question of when you're being creative, to what extent it is it the inspirational source that is impacting the final form of the creative output or to what extent is it your own personal creative style and so she did a bunch of experiments and uh seeing uh for example she would get creative writing students and she would first ask them to see if they can recognize each other's writing style even though when they don't know who wrote a certain passage can they guess above chance which of their classmates wrote that particular passage and they could guess way above chance which of their classmates wrote a particular passage so these are students who have been working together for four years in creative writing classes so they knew each other quite well at that point but then the real question was if you get them to do pieces of art will they be able to recognize the creative essence the creative style of that person through a different medium and it turned out that they could, not as well as they could recognize each other's writing, but almost as well, um, they could, they knew which of their classmates did a work of art, um, even though they'd never seen each other's art before. They only knew each other by way of their, um, by way of their writing. And what made me even think of trying that experiment was that I had once belonged to a group of dancers and we danced together, but you actually weren't allowed to talk in that space. And so I'd never talked with them. I didn't know these people, um, but I did dance with them on a regular basis. But then there was an art show and it turned out that a bunch of people in that dance group had contributed works of art to this art show and I found that I didn't even have to go up and see the signature I could recognize which just through knowing them as dancers which one of them had done the works of art and that I, I that I totally resonate with that because I, I have a dance 
community that I'm I'm involved with here uh, in the Five Rhythms community, and uh, and so shout out to all my Five Rhythms friends who are listening. But uh, it's I being able to go around the world and dance with people who don't speak the same language, but like I really can communicate with them uh, and really know their, you can see their essence. And, and there's just this, this, when I go each week, I, I see, I know people, even though I don't even know what they do for work. I, I don't know. know. Yeah. You, you have no clue what they do, but you know them. Yeah. So it's so great. So I love that story about how you were able to identify whose art was what even without having spoken to the people, but you just through their dance, you were able to know. I love that. Yeah, dance is a is an amazing thing because um, each each person dances differently, but each pair of people dance differently, and so it's it's fascinating to watch different pairs and how they will work off each other and where they'll mm. take things, and it's fascinating to feel your own energy how it plays off of these oh. different people. And it's, it's just so, I don't know if you do contact improv as well, but it's so fun when you, um, if you've been doing it for a while and then you meet somebody who else who has done it for a while and then you just like, you just strike up this magical thing with them and it's, um, there's nothing better in life. Also, uh, I, I do salsa dancing as well. You know, when you find someone else who who's studied it the same way, who knows the same beats that you do, because there's confusion about wh- which beat do you dance on and all that stuff. And there's different styles of salsa. Uh, but when you find someone who you really who, who dances the same similar style, it's like this this, this alignment uh, that is just really beautiful. One more thing I'll, I'll tell you about with respect to those experiments. Um, we also tried getting uh, musicians to create mus- pieces of music and then having artists uh, create piece works of art. And the instruction we gave to the artists was, if this piece of music was a painting, what would it look like? And then what we would have, we would have naive subjects try to guess which paintings were done by which artist and which paintings were inspired by which piece of music so that we could partition out to what extent is the final product um, an expression of the create of the artist's creative style and to what extent is is it an expression of um the the inspirational source and how do they interact so yeah it's been really fun exploring with Mm. all these things yes reminding me um in the book of psalms uh, sometimes the book says um, to David a song because the, the the book of Psalms is, a, is attributed to the king to King David, um, and so um, so some of the psalms say to David a song, and some of the songs psalms say um, from from David a song, um, and so there is this question in uh, in the rabbinic literature post you know, years later that said, what's the difference between to David a song and from David a song? And there's this whole discussion about where does that creativity come from? Does it come from within us and out and emerge out? Or is it something that we receive that we are channeling? And so it sounds very similar what you're saying with the, with your experiment. It's like, who, where, where did that, did, did they were, were they receiving that inspiration from the music they were hearing or were they were, were, were somehow they were placed in a, in a certain energetic space and so they they it emerged out of yes yeah 
And uh, for me, yeah, well, musically, I wrote a, um, I wrote a whole book chapter on the process of creating one particular piece of music, not from a um, scholar, like not from a, a musician's point of view, like something that a layperson could read and sort of understand for the creative process underlying it. Um, and that was really cool because a lot of people resonated with that and it resulted in uh, somebody else in Germany um, giving a lecture and playing the piece of music and for their students and um, and then reading out the the book chapter and then it also resulted in me uh, being invited to give talks at Australian National University which is doing some something pretty interesting so they they have a music school that they have devoted a stream of their um, teaching in the school to the creative process mm -hmm. and to the process to understanding creativity. And so all of their music students take classes in what the creative process is all about. And um, I think that's so cool. And so I haven't heard about that being done elsewhere. And I've given a few lectures there and met some really great people and actually collaborated with some people there as well. People in art school or music school, they go right to the what and not to the why, right? They go right to the like, okay, here, practice your scales or practice your chords, da, 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 da. and like, but like what's underneath that? What's the, what do you do? What do you, what do you do with all that information? Like, how do you turn that into creativity? It's a, it's a really interesting question. I have a theory that artistic creativity is not so different from scientific creativity, like the same processes are involved. But with scientific creativity, you're working with the part of your worldview, the part of your conceptual network that has to do with the aspects of the world that we all share in common. We all get experience to gravity. We all know that if we drop something, it falls. We all have experiences with um, clocks and so forth. So it's parts of the world that are common knowledge. Whereas in the fine arts, you're working with transforming and understanding parts of your worldview that derive from your own personal experience that you don't necessarily have in common with everybody, but that by putting it into some new form, you find a way of having it be appreciated by other people or just feel like it's been expressed and you've, you've gotten it out. And so it's sort of a, all a process of translation, um, but- Translating what's happening in your mind. Yeah, so I know that some of my music has been inspired by experiences that I've had and things that I've been through or things that I've lived. And, uh, and I was going about it very intuitively and trying to be real to all the nuances of that feeling of that experience of what it, it felt like where it landed what it meant in the world and have the music capture that as as a as a whole and then resolve it and synthesize it and uh and so it's it's an expression of that thing and i know that uh, some other people write music in a totally different way. It's just sort of a more, I wonder what would happen if, and they explore, try things out, right? Um, yeah, and maybe it's because 
because I'm not a musician, I don't have the, um, or I mean, I've played music all my life, but I don't define myself as a musician. So I don't have the expectation that I will come up with something every day, right? right. Um, and maybe if I did have that expe expectation, I would spend time trying things out and stuff, but I just wait for things to come to me. And, uh, and then when they come, and if it's a really good piece of music, if you feel it deserves it, then I just give it all I've got. Give it, give it all you've got, you said. Yeah. I, I, I heard, I thought I heard you say, I give it over to God. And I was like, oh. that's an even bigger statement. Wow. <laughs> um, maybe I do that too, but no, give it all I've got. Yeah. That's, that's great. Yeah. My, my process is just start. Uh, and I am a musician, so I do have the confidence that something will come. Uh, and I, I release all expectation about whether this thing is going to be good or bad or, or whatever, just start and then follow the ideas as they come and, and try to make each idea as good as possible. Um, and so that I'm stacking good on top of good. Um, but um, a, and then I don't exactly know what the end result will be, but I know that I know how to, I know how to build it. Um, and so um, it allows for the process to be faster. Um, and, and just do, and I do it as a practice every single day. And so it's, it just becomes faster and faster, like a muscle that's being built. Um, I, I was so excited to talk with you about like specific findings of the research and creativity in the brain. Um, so if you, if, if you, if like, what's the latest, what, what's out there, what's the latest information about like what's happening in our brain when we're engaged in creativity, like what's, what's, what's lighting up in our minds and, and like that's, that's, that's serving the creative process. Well, one thing about creativity is that your whole brain is is doing stuff, right? So that's how it differs from something like planning or decision making or vision, which uh, specifically activated targeted areas of the brain. Um, when you're being creative, there's a lot more of the brain that's activated. And so it's, it's trickier to analyze it at that level. There are people who have um, gotten a good start on that. What's interesting to me, because I is looking at it at what's going on at the neural level, because in order to explain the magic of creativity, like I don't care if this brain circuit's activated and this brain part is activated, um, that doesn't really explain how the creative process works. But to explain the magic of creativity, I think you can actually get at it by looking at the neural level. And what we know about the brain is that it encodes information in a way that is very different from a computer encodes or a conventional computer encodes information. So a computer encodes a piece of information at a particular address, and then it stores it at that address. And then later on, when it needs that information, it looks it up at that address. And it doesn't really pay attention to what the content of the information was it what it what it knows is that it's at that address and so it gets it at that address and human information storage is very different so what ha is happening in, when you're encoding memory about playing a song yesterday say um it doesn't get stored at one particular address it kind of gets smooshed out across a bunch of different cell assemblies and each neuron is tuned to respond maximally to some particular stimulus. So it could be a, um, 
a particular shade of red or a line of a particular orientation or a particular kind of sound. And, uh, and yet it might respond less to things that are similar um, to that particular thing that it's most tuned to respond to. And, uh, and it's, it's kind of an either all or none response, but what changes is the frequency of the response. Um, I mean, that, that little bit isn't important. I just uh, threw it in there for some people who know a little bit about neuroscience. Um, and so, so what, what we call this is distributed representation. So these representations are smooshed out. They're distributed across a bunch of cell assemblies that encode different aspects of that experience. So say you're encoding a memory of um, playing that keyboard you have there. And uh, so it's, in, it's responding to the notes. It's responding to that, um, oh, you forgot to clip your fingernails. And so your fingernails <laughs> clicking the keyboard. Oh, it's responding to that um, you um, were hungry. You know, all these different aspects that, of that experience. Or, you know, it's maybe also to that um, your, your cat died yesterday. And so all of that shapes the network of like the constellation of cell assemblies of neurons that are activated by that particular experience. Is that unique to music and creation or is that, does that happen with any anything? Anything, yeah. So, um, so, so they're distributed and they're also content addressable. And so that means instead of looking something up at a particular address, it's just organized such that all the things that deal with sounds are over here and all the things that deal with line orientations are over here, things that deal with colors are over here. And so something about the location that it's stored, that tells you something about the actual content of it. You're not doing it according to some address, you're doing it on the basis of what the actual content was. And so the upshot of that is that memories that are similar to one another will activate one another. Because Similar in content activates similar an overlapping distribution of memory locations. And so it pulls out something that is very much like the thing that you just encoded there. And that's how a stream of thought will work. It's taking advantage of the idea of the fact that our memories are distributed and they're content addressable. And uh, so this kind of storage it's bad in the sense that it can be sloppy. It means that our memories are not always perfect. Um, what, we, what we take out of memory is always a um, reconstruction of what is in there. So all this stuff that we're encoding in these distributed representations, they all get piled on and piled on with other memories. And so they're all kind of overlapping together. And sometimes when you try to pull something out, it doesn't just pull out that particular memory. It pulls out other stuff that also got used that same with those same overlapping set of neurons, right? So, that's what they mean when they say memory is um, it, 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 it's uh, it, 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 it's um, 
well, it, it, that's why memory is imperfect. And that's why um, there's all these issues about uh, court cases where, yeah, yeah, people are, people don't exactly remember situations perfectly. Okay, so that's the drawback of distributed content addressable memory. But the benefit is that we can be creative. So if you're in a situation where, so the, the example that I always use in the classroom for historical reasons, I guess, is um, inventing of the beanbag chair. And so if you're in a situation and you've been instructed to invent a really comfortable chair, one that, you know, students would love to sit back in after a hard day of school. And um, so you sort of toy with some designs, but you know that your boss wants something really creative and unique and you're just, you're not feeling it. So you go home that night and you throw a beanbag to a baby and then you come back and now the fact that the instruction to build the chair included that it has to be comfortable and included that it has to sort of conform to the shape of the sitter. Well, the last thing that you encountered that conformed to shape, in this case, the shape of your hand, was a beanbag. And so that allows you, so this neuron that responds to anything that conforms to shape, it provides the gateway by which the instruction to invent this new chair could activate um, the memory of the beanbag and allow you to bind these things together. You get something called neural synchrony where they're all firing at the same time. And binding means that these connections become solidified. And that allows you to come up with this invention of the beanbag chair. And so that that's just sort of encapsulates what's going on whenever you're being creative. You, you're, you're taking more out of your brain than you ever put into it. Mm. So that beanbag chair inventor, he knew about beanbags, he knew about chairs, he knew about the adjective of comfort, but he'd never put them all together before. He, he didn't have something in his memory that was a beanbag chair, but he retrieved from his memory something more than he had ever put into his memory, the beanbag chair. And so that's why this kind of organization is actually beneficial and it helps us be creative. And that's super important because our ability to adapt to new landscapes and problem solve and apply solutions that worked in one context to a different context is what allowed us to be super successful as a species and just sort of, you know, um, find ourselves on every continent of this planet okay. and, and able to occupy um, vastly different climates and so forth. I, I think this is so fascinating and so interesting. And I wonder, having studied so much about creativity and done a lot of research and like you have a, your, your mind is filled with all this research, how does all of that knowledge about creativity affect your own personal creative process? Does it get in the way or does it benefit your creative process? Does knowing so much about how the brain works, does that actually help or does that hinder your entrance into the creative process? Yeah, that's a great question. I know that for some people, it is scary to know how it works or it just feels. Uh, so I gave a talk at Emily Carr University, um, which is a um, it, 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 a university devoted to fine arts in uh, Vancouver, Canada. And um, I remember distinctly hearing a student say afterwards, oh, I don't want to know this because it's going to interfere with me actually just doing it. <laughs> I'll, I'll be thinking about it too much. And um, I understand that point of view. And 
I think there are many people who feel that way, but I don't feel that way at all. I feel that it, um, it it's beneficial, actually. So, for example, it, uh, I know about the importance of incubation and going away from what you're working on and that that can actually be the best thing you could do for your creative output because it means that the back burners of your mind are getting a chance to play with it and they play with it in way more creative ways than when you're actually consciously striving to make progress on it right um so it's gives me permission to go away and to also listen to when it needs that hard work, but listen to when it's time to back away and to sense the rhythm of the idea itself and, and to feel what it needs. And I, I think of these things almost as living things and you're, you're working with them. And uh, it's, so, so I, th I so, so I guess the other way is that also I think of creativity as what fuels cultural change, right? And, um, and, and we contribute to biological evolution by having offspring and caring for them and nurturing them and bringing them into the world. But I think we contribute to a second evolutionary process, the process of culture, in a very similar way. But what we're nurturing is not offspring. What we're nurturing is ideas. And, uh, and I think what they need is actually very similar to what a child needs. Um, they, need, they need nurturing. They need being heard to and understood at this very intuitive level that may have nothing to do with people, what people are actually saying. And, uh, and just they, they need you to give your energy to them and give your resources to them. And um, I actually think that often creative people are described as being cold and aloof and domineering and uh, arrogant often. And, and I sometimes keep in mind, this is how humans are describing them, right? Um, but most humans, they, they reserve their nurturing energies for other humans. But creative people reserve their nurturing energies for ideas. So it seems obvious that the other people, because they're not receiving that kind of nurturing energy, they will sense that they're cold and aloof and so forth. Um, and yet they are as nurturing it just goes in this other direction yeah. and what is feeling it is these ideas and these these things that can't say thank you but but in, the, in, in if you're listening they kind of do they do it almost as much as children do and um so it's a different it's a very different way of living your life and i think uncreative people will they do not appreciate how different a route through this experience of being alive, the creative life is. I don't know if you would agree with that. It resonates so much with what you, with, with a lot of what you just spoke about. And it, um, it touches me personally, because, uh, because it, 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 it helps explain a lot in terms of social dynamics and interactions I've had with other humans where, where it just, um, 
and also my my previous kind of beliefs about artists and and what and and ways that I stopped myself from pursuing a career as an artist because of my judgments about artists in general uh, and how I've had to work mm-hmm. through that and own that I am an artist uh, and that yeah I love what you were saying about how it's a pursuit of nurturing ideas um, I think that 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 really resonates uh, with me. Um, but we also can be incredibly nurturing and loving people and caring people to to others and sensitive to I think because we're we're good at accessing our own emotions emotions and feelings and so we become very sensitive and tuned to other people's feelings and emotions. Well, one thing I kind of noticed in myself, and then I, I yeah, I guess that's another way that studying it has helped me is that I started seeing this is a pattern in creative people where there are some people that you don't you don't resonate with and you know that you're perceived by them as being a perfectionist as not having the time of day and being aloof and all these negative things and yet there's other people who you almost instantly hit it off with and resonate with and like um you are just um uh you just are feel this strong connection with and uh and so I noticed that when I decide someone's my friend I like they're my friend and uh and then there's other people that like I just feel like they 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 are just in a different reality from me and I you know um hopefully we can go through what we need to do and just each accomplish what we need to do. But, um, but I started to see, okay, this is a pattern with creative people and I'm not alone in feeling that I'm this way. And it's probably all right to feel this way. Um, and the world probably needs a mix of both kinds of people. And I actually ended up doing compu- computational experiments on this. So um, studying. Uh, so I'd had this artificial uh, society made up of neural network based agents and the agents stand for individuals. And um, so what they can do is they could invent new ideas and they can imitate each other's ideas. And through this combination of inventing and imitating, you see adaptive improvement over time in the fitness or the quality of their ideas. And so then I I did a bunch of experiments on this. So I experimented um, what is the optimal ratio of inventors to creators and in fact if everybody is just a, an inventor or sorry if everybody is a, is an imitator um and they're you know then nothing happens at all the fitness of their ideas remains at zero because everybody's watching watching or waiting for it's like a high school dance right everybody's just waiting for someone else to do something and nobody starts doing something so there has to be something worth imitating before the ability to imitate is of any value. So you need some creators, right? Um, but if all of the agents are creators, there is increase in fitness over time because individually they're all improving, but they're not taking advantage of each other's solutions. So there's a lot of reinventing the wheel. Hmm. And uh, if you look at what's going on in these, um, you know, when there's when there's too many creative agents, they're just sitting there spinning their own wheels, reinventing something that's already been invented. And they're like fabrics in the terror of society because they could be passing along some tried and true thing that is shown at works. It's already out there. Why bother um, trying to invent it? 
So instead of passing these proven solutions along, they're spinning their own wheels. So what you need is a balance of both these creative types and these more conventional types that uh, are more concerned with perpetuating things that we know works. And so I start to see, you know, it's absolutely crucial to society that you have this blend and in fact I started to think that when this started to happen was about 100,000 years ago when we started to get um, there was something called the well what is uh, controversial being called the big bang of human uh, cultural evolution it's been called um, the the birth of art science and religion so when you start to see um the earliest signs of uh, burying the dead, so early, or sorry, burying the dead and, and burying them with trinkets and stuff. You see early stone, uh, sorry, more sophisticated stone tools. So instead of like one hatchet for every single job that you could do, you see specialized tools for different tasks. And you see um, like uh, a little bit later flutes and stuff, so musical instruments and stuff. So um, I started to think, okay, once you get this explosion of cultural novelty, then it becomes adaptive to have sort of an, a division of labor where some people will become more creative and some people become less creative. And I also started to explore, okay, what would be the cognitive mechanisms that would lead to this differentiation amongst a, the members of a society? The reality is that all you need is one one person to invent something and then everybody else can just copy it, right? So you don't need everybody to be creative, but you do need at least that one person. You do need a, you know, a, a consistent stream of, you need a backup probably too, in case they get eaten by a lion or something, right? You need a consistent stream of creative people, but also you need people that will preserve the best solutions. And uh, so I started exploring, okay, how would this have evolved in human history? And um, what would be the cognitive mechanisms? What would be the pressures toward and away for different, different balances? And then another thing I did with this computer model was I gave each agent the ability to increase or decrease how creative they are on the basis of signals that they're getting about the value of their creations. So if they're inventing actions that have a really high fitness, then they might increase how creative they allow themselves to be. So how many of their iterations they spend inventing versus imitating their neighbors. And so um, what happened when I allowed for them to increase or decrease how creative they are on the basis of how good their ideas are is that the mean fitness of ideas across the society as a whole increased. So that's support for the hypothesis that you want this balance. And what would also happen is that you would get this division of labor over time into people sort of specializing at inventing and people specializing at, um, at, uh, at imitating. Uh, so fascinating how deep your work has gone and how intricate and how creative you've been with the research. <laughs> creativity in the research that you're doing and, and your approach to studying creativity is a creative practice in and of itself. So uh, it has just been such a joy to learn from you and to listen to you and to uh, be guided by you. And uh, there's just, you know, we could talk for hours about this because I think it's so fascinating, all the work and the, the research that you've done. Uh, I just want to thank you uh, once again. I'm speaking with Leanne Gabora, who's a professor of psychology at the University of British Columbia and 
also has been doing uh, a lot, a lot of research uh, in the topic of creativity, uh, which you've now heard just a small piece of over the last 45 minutes or so. Uh, so thank you so much for coming here and for speaking and uh, so brilliantly on the subject of creativity. And I really hope that we can find ways to connect and stay connected in the future. Super. Well, this was fun. Um, thanks for inviting me to do it. Absolutely. So once again, we've come to the end of our podcast. Thank you to Leanne Gabora for coming onto the show and sharing her insights into the creative process. We didn't have time for a revoice practice on today's episode. So if you're looking to get your revoice fix, make sure you're subscribed to my YouTube channel under the name Noah Aronson to watch my revoice videos. You can also purchase my six-part series through the group song platform where we go deeper into the revoice method and I share techniques for accessing your authentic voice. As always, I want to remind you that we are all creatives and that in every moment we can be happier, be healthier, be more alive. We can all be major. See you next week.